Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And it's for real, Spooktober. It's here. We did it. Um, So I have been really caught up in work lately, both for my day job and preparing my paper for the American Anthropological Association's annual meeting coming up in a few weeks. Um, Anna just did a flamenco clap from (laughs) what looks like several yards away from the microphone. Um, so I am calling an audible for this week. Um, Anna is also getting in on my, sorry, 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 sorry. Uh, so between that and reduced bandwidth, sorry again. So between that (laughs) reduced bandwidth and the nostalgia of shifting seasons, I'm calling an audible for this episode. Anna is also getting in on my nostalgia of childhood Halloween times by being sick. Uh, This week, so as a result, this week, I'm going to share some folk tales and spooky stories from my own little corner of the world, the the one from which I come, not West Philly, Um, but with that overthinky anthropological spin, y'all know you can count on me for. So everything I read today will be linked in the show notes in uh, one form or another. Um, Even though I'm including these for the purposes of education and discussion, and several of them are quite like old or sort of pastiches, um, I might misunderstand copyright law and we might have to eventually cut them. Um, But for now, I I want to read them and share them with y'all. Uh, but first, Anna, I know you were more of a wholesome child of the light, um, but were there any scary stories or urban legends that you grew up with? I assume that all of New England was just like Washington Irving. Yeah, it's, 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 New England is a pretty haunted place. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was, I, the legend of Sleepy Hollow, like I, the Headless Horseman, I, I read those as a kid. Okay. It but you didn't have, like, local I, ones? The one thing that I thought of when you were describing what this episode was going to be to me was yes. a song that we... So uh, we had, you know, music class in elementary school, and our teacher tended to try to work in kind of seasonal stuff. And so yeah. around Halloween time, uh, I don't know if this was multiple years or this just stuck in my head because of the image, but... um we learned the song, the ghost, I think it's called the ghost of John. And I, I will, I will tell you that I'm not going to sing it, but it's. Do the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out? No. It's not that one. Okay. Maybe. Maybe there's a verse. I don't know. Your mouth. No, this is a very sort of mournful. It's in minor oh. and it's slow. It's, um, and so it's the lyrics are have you seen the ghost of John long white bones and the rest all so gone and gone. there's some Ooh. and there's some ooing Ooh. and the, but then yeah and then the Wouldn't last it line be chilly with no, no skin, skin on. on yeah yes. that's what okay. sticks with me just okay. like new the practicality of New Englanders yeah. like aren't you cold we learned, we learned that too yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um uh, and so that made have me think of all the, of the charbuterie images. Have, <laughs> which goes yeah, to John so just I've, with like prosciutto hanging off. I've him. had, 
as Anna reminded me when I told you two separate stories on two separate days, when I, was like, I woke up and said, I just had a nightmare about People someone, someone like flayed, flayed alive. To look like the charbuterie that's the like, prosciutto wrapped around. Maybe Pinterest isn't the best way to wind down your day. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just keep getting that. Um, but speaking <laughs> of Pinterest, um, what I'm serving up today to you, Anna, <laughs> is, a ba- Sorry. is a balanced meal, which means that I got to heap some veggies up on your plate. But these are good veggies, like roasted brussies like these are good um so let's talk about folklore what it is why it is and how it shows up in our lives today and so our uh is referring to like anglophone north american yours and mine anna um so for a definition of folklore, I, like many before me, am turning to Four Functions of Folklore by William R. Bascom, originally a presidential address delivered to the 1953 meeting of the American Folklore Society. It is very 1953 and has many 1953 style references to other largely like cultural anthropologists. Uh, but folk folklore is... Just the collections of um, like stories, sayings, uh, riddles, like all of that stuff. And it's largely, well, and in 1953, it was sort of uh, considered to be the remit of the places you go to to do anthropology at. Um, hmm. But uh, we today, most of us understand and listeners now understand that it's actually um, kind of pervasive through human culture. We, our, we also share, uh, folklore. Um, it just may look different. Um, but as the title says, there are four functions. And so according to Bascom, those four functions are first being entertainment. Like this is sort of the most kind of superficial treatment of it, that it's meant to be amusement, like said for amusement, uh, like entertain kids or, you know, like when you're, you're hanging around with your bros. Um, it's an opportunity for <laughs> scary escapism. stories with the bros. Yeah. It's an opportunity for escapism or magical realism in stories that otherwise mirror everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, uh, the second one is validation. Um, and quoting his address here, a second function of folklore is that what it plays that which it plays in validating culture, in justifying its rituals and institutions to those who perform and observe them. Uh, myth is not explanatory, Malinowski emphasized. So Malinowski, one of those. I know, I know uh, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but serves as a, quote, warrant, a charter, and often even a practical guide, end quote, to magic, ceremony, ritual, and social structure. Yeah, we talked about this when we talked about theater. Yeah. The way that that plays a Um, similar role. The third is education. Um, And uh, predominantly, but not exclusively, in non-literate societies. So it's, and so um, quoting 
uh, Bascom here. The importance of the many forms of folklore as pedagogic devices has been documented in many parts of the world, although perhaps most comprehensively in Raum's study of education among the Shaga of East Africa. Here, ogre tales, like our bogeyman stories, are used in the discipline of very young children, and lullabies are sung to put them in a good humor. Somewhat later, fables or folk tales incorporating morals are introduced, quote, quoting Rome, to inculcate general attitudes and principles such as diligence and filial piety and to ridicule laziness, rebelliousness, and snobbishness, end quote. Riddles are used to express a threat which the speaker may not wish to carry out, to direct another's action where a blunt command might offend, or to incite a person to action through irony. And so, end in quote there. Does that make sense? The riddles expressing a threat, I don't really understand. I got everything else. So, um, so let's say that you are a college student and you live in a dorm that has a communal laundry area and you all have uh, your bottles of laundry detergent and um, you suspect that someone might be using other people's laundry detergent but you can't really prove it and you don't want to call them out because they like they're like your roommate and you don't want it to be weird and so you say did you hear like did you hear there was a girl who um was like using other people's laundry detergent and, and they, they put bleach ah. they put bleach in it and so then like the person the person who owned it knew this and so mm -hmm. they let it happen mm -hmm. and then she took her jeans out of the dryer and there were uh -huh. bleach spots so everyone knew that she was the one who did that you I do this see. so yeah. that that person who's like oh like that's a crazy story man and then like goes to cvs and buys a bottle of their own um dishwashing not dishwashing clothes washing detergent but so that that kind of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a threat or sort of like something to kind of bring people... It would be a shame if this were to happen to you. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> In the fourth place, folklore fulfills the important but often overlooked function of maintaining conformity to the accepted patterns of behavior. Although related to the last two functions, it deserves to be distinguished from them. More than simply serving to validate or justify institutions, beliefs, and attitudes, some forms of folklore are important as a means of applying social pressure and exercising social control. So these are so they have jobs. Like like folklore has jobs. Um, like it isn't just something that like silly simple folk people tell each other to pass the time because you know they're children they're basically children you know like it's that's not that's not what it is it actually has like a, a pretty um uh complex uh role in society and now that we've had our veggies how do you feel about that you feel good about that yeah that all that's a good framing for what whatever okay. you're about to scare me with well we're gonna have our protein. Yeah. I'm tracking um, those macros. Have you ever heard of the Taily Po? I have. Like that that name is familiar, but I don't I can't conjure up an image or okay. remember any of the story. But okay. it's a pretty it's a memorable name, if nothing else. Yeah. So the Taily Po is 
uh, is like a, is one of ours, uh, like my, my people's, the Appalachians. Um, and so I'm going to quote from a post on the blog Storytelling for Everyone, um, which you can find linked in the show notes. Old man Fletcher lived in a log cabin up a dark holler deep in the mountains of West Virginia. He had three dogs that kept him company on the long, lonely nights. Their names were I Know, You Know, and Calico. The cabin only had one room. Old man Fletcher had his bed on one side of the room and his fireplace was on the other. His dog slept in the crawl space under the porch. On cold winter nights, old man Fletcher liked to sit by the fireplace and warm his bones. One winter night, old man Fletcher was feeling mighty hungry. The weather had been bad for several days, so he hadn't been able to hunt, and all he had left to eat was a handful of dry beans. He threw them into his cast iron pot where they landed with a hollow rattle, poured in some water from his gourd dipper, added a pinch of salt, and put them over the fire to cook. The water in the pot began to boil. After a while, old man Fletcher dipped his wooden spoon in and tasted the beans. They were still hard. Old man Fletcher grimaced as he swallowed the rough mouthful. Why did beans take so long to cook? His stomach grumbled, and he knew the measly handful of beans wouldn't be enough to satisfy his belly. He needed meat, maybe some salt pork or a slab of fat back. His mouth watered at the thought. He settled back in his hickory chair and stared into the flames, listening to the bubbling of the beans. Logs burned down into coals. Old man Fletcher sighed, and he picked up another log to add. It was too big to fit under the pot, so he grabbed his hatchet and split it into four pieces. He was just about to dry, try the beans again when he heard a scratching sound coming from under the floorboards. He looked down and saw a black furred paw with long claws coming out of the knot hole in the floor. It was a hole he'd been meaning to fix, but it hadn't got to yet. As he watched, claws dug into the wood and scratched viciously. Wood crumbled away and the hole widened. The paw was followed by another paw, and then a head appeared, as big around as his fist and set with, glittering, with a glittering pair of green eyes. The creature pulled the rest of its body inside. It was long like a weasel, but bigger, and it had thick, meaty tail that drug on the ground behind it. The tail was hairless and pink, like an overweight rat's. When the creature saw Old Man Fletcher, it humped up its back and hissed, revealing jaws lined with white pointed teeth. Old Man Fletcher grabbed his hatchet. The creature spun around and tried to dive back down the hole. It was fast, but so was Old Man Fletcher. He brought the hatchet down right at the base of the critter's tail. The creature shrieked in pain and disappeared through the hole, leaving its bloody tail twitching on the floor. Old Man Fletcher picked up the tail and was about to throw it outside for the dogs when he noticed how heavy it was in his hand. There was a lot of meat on it. His stomach rumbled again. So he threw it into the pot of beans, skin, bones, and all. A wonderful smell filled the cabin. Old Man Fletcher waited as long as he could, then took the pot off the fire. The beans were still a little hard, but he didn't care. The meat tasted wonderful, kind of like squirrel. With his stomach full, Old Man Fletcher plugged up the hole in the floor with some old rags. Then he got into bed and drifted off to sleep. He hadn't been asleep too long when a sound woke him up. It sounded like something was trying to claw a hole through the wall of the cabin. Old Man Fletcher sat up in bed and looked around, trying to figure out which wall the sound was coming, the sound was coming from. Taily-po, taily-po, I want my taily-po. The voice came from somewhere outside the door on the porch. It was high, grating, and strange, like a cat with pneumonia, whining. Old Man Fletcher jumped out of bed and called to his dogs. I know, you know, Calico, chase that thing off. 
The dogs started barking and scrabbled their way out from under the porch. The creature scratching on the way scampered away, leading the dogs off into the woods. Old man Fletcher listened as their barks grew more and more distant. He stayed up until he heard them return, one by one, back under the porch to go to sleep. Then he climbed back in bed and pulled up his blanket. He was just about to drift off to sleep when he heard the scratching sound again. This time it sounded like it was coming from one of the windows. Whatever that creature was, it really wanted in. He heard the strange voice again, mewing louder this time. Taily-po, taily-po, where is my taily-po? Old man Fletcher was getting a little shaky. He eased up to the window and yelled to his dogs, I know, you know, Calico, see what's scratching on my house. The dogs came running and chased the critter back into the woods. Old man Fletcher was too worried to sleep. He ripped the blanket off his bed, wrapped up in it, and moved to his hickory chair by the fire. He sat there listening waiting for his dogs to return. They never did. A restless sleep soon overtook him. The scent of smoke awoke the old man at dawn. He opened his eyes and leapt from the chair, kicking the blanket off him. The edge of the blanket had found its way into the fireplace sometime during the night, and the wool was now smoldering. Old man Fletcher stomped on the blanket, trying to put out the flames now consuming it. He cursed and jumped back, nursing a burned foot. Thick smoke, heavy with the scent of burnt wood. Wool, burnt wool, filled the cabin. Old man Fletcher coughed. His eyes streamed. He picked up the blanket by the corner, ran to the window, opened it, and threw the blanket out. He stood there for a moment, gulping in the fresh air and fanning the smoke. The sun was shining. Birds flitted through the tree branches and searched for food in the snow. Old man Fletcher looked around. There was no sign of the strange, tailless critter. His foot throbbed. Old man Fletcher limped back to the bed and sat down. He propped his foot up and laid back, exhausted from the events of the night. He fell into a deep sleep. Taily-po, taily-po, you've got my taily-po. Old man Fletcher opened his eyes to find the hideous creature from the night before perched on the end of his bed. It jumped into his chest. It jumped onto his chest and fixed him with its blood-red eyes. I ain't got your taily-po no more. I, uh, I ate it, said old man Fletcher. <laughs> the creature leaned close and growled. Old man Fletcher screams, echoed down through the holler, then stopped leaving a chilling silence. The single-room log cabin still stands in that holler, deep in the mountains of West Virginia. Occasionally, hunters or hikers will stay there for the night. They say if you wind up late, if you, if you stay up late at night there and listen closely, you'll hear a strange voice on the wind. Taily-po, taily-po, now I got my taily-po. Did that bring, ring any bells? Yeah, okay. about a third yeah. of the way through. I was like, oh, I remember like, oh, I see the story and yeah. why I... Why I memory hold it. So I heard a few different versions of that story as a child, including what you probably had encountered, an illustrated Mm. children's book from 1977 called The Taily Poe, a ghost story, um, which is just like a a, like a mainstream children's book. Um, Mm -hmm. And I linked to it on archive.org. All of those versions of the story that I know uh, feature an elderly hermit facing food insecurity, a messed up cryptid whose tail is consumed, and the creature (laughs) eventually eviscerating the man to get its tail back. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of them involve a lot of dog murder, um, which is a huge bummer. Um, So I heard all of these versions as a kid. Um, they're meant to be children's stories, but is that appropriate? 
So, Anna, I can't think of anyone better to weigh in on this topic of what is appropriate for children than two childless people with anxiety and no training in developmental psychology. Mm -hmm. Back home, I used to volunteer at a summer literacy program and the hottest title every year with like the fourth, fifth graders, the younger ones, it was like sharks. Uh, That was always, but with these, with the older, the big kids, the, you know, nine, 10 years old, Mm -hmm. um, hottest title was scary stories to tell in the dark series. So my little reading companions could not get enough of this. And they also loved how I only slightly hammed it up when I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have nightmares now uh, when we'd get to the end of one. Because again, see above with the like, like spooky charcuterie. Um, meet people. <laughs> you're supposed to go out and meet people, not yeah, meet meet people. People. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, are you so are you familiar with scary stories to tell in the dark, or more yes. scary stories to tell in the dark, or even more scary stories to tell in the dark? It's a franchise that um, works. Yeah. So the author of that trilogy was Alvin Schwartz, who was a folklorist. Um, and he wrote more than 50 books, uh, many of which were for young readers across reading levels. Like he, he had a few that were the I Can Read books, mm. um, which are like adorably scary. Where it's like, ah! <laughs> it's like a, a, g- g- a, g- 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 ghost. <laughs> Um, so he did extensive research and included notes like the one I do remember about the, the story of the little boy who brought a puppy home from his vacation in Mexico oh. that turned out to be a nasty rabid rat beast. And the end note was something like, like, this Chupacabra. is probably motivated by racist replacement fears. <laughs> it's like, <a> really <laughs> like this idea that like, Th- thanks, Alvin. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, well, I'm glad he said it. Um, yeah. And um, he was regularly pilloried by concerned parents at school board meetings for discussing topics that were scary, taboo, gross, and uh, perhaps most memorably, or most memorably, uh, brought to life by Stephen Gamel's naughtyingly, naughtyingly, nauseatingly evocative monochromatic ink and watercolor illustrations. Oh. Um, yeah, I hate them. I hate looking at them. They're very okay. No one's very talented, but don't look at. I don't like looking at it. Um, I feel that way about a lot of art. <laughs> a lot of things I send you. Um, so the first mm-hmm. volume of these books uh, was published more than forty years ago, mm-hmm. and after millions of copies sold, a film adaptation featuring Guillermo del Toro approved monsters and untold numbers of pearls clutched, Schwartz's <laughs> work persists. Um, just breaking news for my mom: her dog mm-hmm. looks so little. Um, did did. Nuggie go to groomies? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just got a text. She looks so little. <laughs> yep. Thanks, Mar. Um, in addition to Schwartz being the one folklorist most likely to be familiar to our audience, uh, mm. I mentioned his work here because I read a lot of it recently trying to track down a specific story that Mrs. Allen, my fifth grade teacher, uh, read to us that chilled me to my still growing bones. 
Uh, turns out it was from a different anthology of scary stories for children. Uh, but despite being a geographically indiscriminate collection, it was very relevant to us in the hills and hollers. So I found it again um, after much sleuthing. And I found it digitized on the Internet Archive and its 2000 version, uh, where part of the best of scary stories for Stormy Nights. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, 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 you know, this was it's a proven formula. Um, so the digitized copy is, is scribbled upon and from the Boston Public Library. Which is very cute. Um, and the story is called Bloody Laundry by R.C. Welch. So I'll re- read I'll read the story to you, and then I will tell you mine. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, (sighs) yay. (laughs) Bloody Laundry by R.C. Welch. The morning sky was dark with the promise of a coming storm. Ellen couldn't stop shivering as she waited for her friends, Sybil and Nola. The three of them always walked to school together, but this morning, Ellen wished she had gotten a ride from her mom instead. It looked like they were going to get drenched. Finally, she saw the two girls approaching from further down the street. Come on, you guys, she shouted as she took a few (laughs) steps toward them. I'm freezing to death. Don't be such a wimp, Sybil called back. This This is spring weather where I come from in Chicago. They say it's going to snow later today, Nola added in her usual... Sorry. They say it's going to snow later today. Nola added in her usual serious tone as they drew closer. Well, I don't care if it does. Ellen fell in beside her friends, as long as I don't have to be outside in it. As if in response to Ellen's comment, a light rain began to fall. Huddling under their umbrellas, the three girls followed their usual path through the woods. During the summer, this was the best part of the day. Ellen loved walking through the cool shade under the trees, following the crooked stream that flowed there. But today the bare branches looked like dead claws, and everything was eerily silent, except for the faint dripping of rainwater off the tree limbs. Although nobody said anything, all three girls felt the strange silence and walked a little faster than they normally did. Then they all stopped dead in their tracks when they saw a figure bending over the edge of the stream ahead of them. Who's that? asked Sybil, pointing at the crouching figure. I've never seen her before. Ellen peered through the misty gloom at the old woman. It looked like she was bending over something in the water. What is she doing out here on a horrible day like this? Ellen wondered out loud. Weird, muttered Nola. Let's go around her. Ellen nodded her agreement. Something about the whole situation was odd, and she suddenly felt nervous. As the three girls began to edge off the path, Ellen, who didn't want to startle the woman, called out, Hello, to her as they came closer. She didn't answer, but Ellen was now close enough to see the woman's greasy black hair and the faded, shapeless dress she was wearing. Unbelievably, it looked like the woman was doing her laundry in the stream. Ellen was about to make a comment to her friends when she saw what the woman was washing and her words caught in her throat. She was washing clothes so stained with blood that part of the stream where she knelt was a pool of red. There was blood streaked on the woman's arms up to her elbows, and tiny fingers of red slipped into the current, washing downstream. 
Ellen stopped abruptly and heard Sybil and Nola stumbling to a halt behind her. They, she heard one of them gasp as she got a glimpse of the horrible sight. Do you think she killed somebody? demanded Nola in a shrill voice backing away. Although Nola had spoken loudly, the woman gave no sign that she even noticed the three girls. I don't know, whispered Ellen. Well, let's not stick around to find out, insisted Sybil. Let's get out of here. The girls broke into a run, stumbling over roots, dodging tree branches and prickly bushes. The three friends fled in the direction of their school. Every few feet, one of them would cast a panicked glance over their shoulder to see if the horrible laundress was chasing after them, but she seemed to have vanished in the mist. Ellen broke out of the trees first, with Noel and Sybil close behind. Then together they raced across the meadow to the safety of the school football field. Erin Smith, the teenage daughter of the P.E. teacher, was jogging around the dirt track that circled the field. Ellen called out as they ran toward the older girl. What is it? Ellen, Erin asked. <laughs> what? Erin <laughs> asked in alarm when she saw their panic she, faces. Can you do that one line again? Just like what? Which, with the part where I forgot what their names are. Yeah. Um, what is it? What is it? Aaron asked in alarm when she saw their panic faces. What's the matter? We saw, Ellen gasped, we saw something horrible back along the stream. It was an old woman, added Nola in a breathy voice. And she, she was washing clothes covered with blood. Sybil finished. <laughs> Aaron's eyes widened in disbelief. What? What exactly did you see? Ellen had recovered her breath by this point and attempted to tell her story as calmly as she could. When she finished, she shuddered with the awful memory. And the old woman never said a word, Nola added. She never even looked up. Erin considered what she had just heard. Then she looked at the three girls with confidence. I know what you saw, she said. You've just described a Benia. Benia? asked Sybil, puzzled by the strange word. Aaron nodded. Yeah, I've heard about them from my grandmother. They're supposed to be the ghosts of women who died in childbirth. They're fated to wash their bloody laundry until the day when they normally would have died. But the three friends looked at each other in disbelief. But what does it mean? Ellen asked. Why would we see her there all of a sudden? We walk the same way to school every day and I've never seen her before. Aaron glanced over their heads toward the forest. Then she leaned forward and whispered slowly, the Benia is only seen by those who are about to die. What? Ellen yelped, backing up a step. Sybil put her hands on her hips. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. She scoffed. Aaron straightened. You're the ones who brought her up, not me. But, Nola protested, we all saw her. What does that mean? I don't know, Aaron asked, answered with a shrug. Maybe it only counts for the one who saw her first. In spite of her skepticism about Aaron's story, Ellen felt an icy layer forming around her heart. But, but who was that? She stammered. Oh, come on, Sybil exclaimed angrily. This is crazy. It was probably some old beggar woman. She looked up at the sky, now almost black. We're about to get soaked and first period is starting. I'm out of here. And with that, she stormed off toward the school, deciding that she was probably right. Nola and Ellen said goodbye to Aaron and followed their friend to class. Aaron's just trying to scare us. Nola whispered. Yeah, Ellen whispered back, hoping that Nola was right. The rain grew stronger throughout the day and lightning filled the sky. By the end of the afternoon, icy hail was coming down in sheets. Rather than walk home in the downpour, Ellen called her mom at work to see if she could drive her and Nola home. 
Sybil, who truly loved the cold weather, remember she's from Chicago, mm-hmm. decided she'd rather walk. Watch out for the bloody laundry lady, Ellen joked. During the day, they had come to agree with Sybil that all they had seen was a beggar woman washing her clothes. Now they were convinced that what they thought was blood was only some kind of wine or food stain. In this weather, Sybil asked with raised eyebrows, no laundry is that important. She burst out laughing and headed for the forest. Good one, Sybil. (laughs) By the time Ellen sat down to dinner, (laughs) this... The hail had turned to snow. Looks like we're in for a real blizzard, her dad said as he came to the table after watching the news. Really? Ellen asked, a faint stir of excitement running through her at the thought of school being canceled. I sure hope. But the ring of the telephone interrupted, and she excused herself to answer it. It was Sybil's mother, asking if she had seen Sybil. She never came home from school, the worried woman said. Please, Ellen, can you tell me where she is? But all Ellen could offer was the news that Sybil had decided to walk home after school by herself. Over the next few hours, as the wind rose and the snow began to fall more heavily, policemen searched the neighborhood for Sybil. Her body was found within a few hours, lying halfway in the stream in the woods. They say she probably slipped and fell, Ellen said in a tense telephone conversation with Nola after the initial shock had worn off. She must have hit her head on a rock or something and froze to death before she came to. Do you really believe that? Nola asked. What do you mean? Ellen returned almost defensively. Of course I do. Don't you? It just seems so sudden. Nola answered. I, I don't know what to believe. They were both silent for a moment, thinking of their friend. Then Nola asked hesitantly, What about the woman we saw this morning? What about her? Ellen demanded harshly. She wasn't about to admit that the same thought had already crept into her head. She had been relieved that if Aaron had been telling the truth, then at least they now knew who had seen the washing woman first. Sure, it had made Ellen feel disgusted with herself for thinking such a horrible thing, but she had to admit that she was glad she wasn't the one who was found dead in the stream. Well, Nola continued, Maybe the woman we saw really was that Bania thing Aaron was talking about. And your happy Sybil was the first was the one to see it first, Ellen said, accusing her friend of her own selfish thought. Nola sounded shocked. No, I'm wondering if Aaron was right. Maybe the curse counts for everyone who sees the woman. Now Ellen felt really scared. Look, Nola, Sybil's mom told the police that it wasn't Now Ellen felt really scared. Look, Nola, Sybil's mom said the police told her it was an accident. That's good enough for me. She searched for an excuse to hang up. Anyway, I've got to get off the phone now. My mom wants to use it. Okay, Nola said, unconvinced. I'll see you tomorrow, I hope. By morning, thick drifts of snow had piled up overnight, and the radio announcer reported that her school would be closed for the day. Ellen's wish had come true but her parents weren't so lucky. Their offices were both staying open, so Ellen asked her dad to drop her off at Nola's house on his way to work. By unspoken agreement, neither of the girls mentioned the strange woman they had seen the previous day. Still, they couldn't help talking about Sybil and how much they missed her. By mid-morning, the snow began falling again, and soon after, while Ellen and Nola were watching TV, the electricity went out. With a groan, Nola picked up the phone to call her parents, who had also gone to work. That's when the girls realized the phone lines were dead, too. 
Now what are we going to do? Ellen wondered out loud, a feeling of panic slowly rising within her. How about making some lunch and then going out back and building a snow fort? Suggested Nola, who didn't seem to be bothered at all. Yeah, exclaimed Ellen, immediately forgetting her fears. Maybe we can get some of the other kids from the block to come over so we can have a snowball war. Soon they were happily hunched over peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, cracking each other up with silly stories about some of last winter's snowball fights. Ellen was in the middle of describing how she pounded how she pounded one of the boys from their band class when Nola began making a strange sound. What? Ellen asked, thinking the other girl was trying to say something. I didn't understand you. Gagging uncontrollably, Nola pushed herself away from the table. That's when Ellen realized something was terribly wrong. Her friend's face was turning bright red and her hands were clutching helplessly at her throat. Nola! Ellen screamed. She tried pounding on her friend's back, but Nola's horrible choking only became worse. In her desperation, Ellen grabbed her friend from behind, wrapped her arms around Nola's chest like she had seen on TV, and squeezed. But nothing happened, and Nola's face was now changing from red to blue, and her lips were turning a horrible shade of purple. With all her veins... With her veins swelling on her forehead as if they were about to pop, Nola fell to her knees. She turned an agonized face toward Ellen, then fell to the floor in a deadly silence. Then her body relaxed, and the color completely drained from her face. Nola? Ellen said in a small voice. Then she screamed, No! and ran out of the house. She had no clear idea of where she was going. All she knew was that she had to get away from her friend's body, and she had, all she heard over and over were Aaron's words, The Bania is only seen by those who are about to die. Suddenly feeling the cold air going right through her thin turtleneck, Ellen realized that she had run out of Nola's house without a jacket. Panicking, she looked around. It was hard to recognize where she was. Everything was white, and the swirling snow made it impossible for her to see more than a few feet in front of her. To make matters worse, with the electricity down, there were no street lamps or house lights to form landmarks. I am not going to die, she said out loud to no one. It's just a coincidence. That's all it is. A horrible coincidence. She began walking in what she thought was the right direction toward her house. But before long, she was shivering so hard her teeth were chattering. She tried to angle herself toward the sidewalk and ended up stumbling into a street sign. By squinting, she could barely make out the letters, and she happily realized that it was about five blocks away from home. No problem, she told herself. I've done this walk hundreds of times before, but not in weather like this. Ignoring her traitorous thoughts, Ellen struggled forward toward what she hoped was her house. Soon her world narrowed to the patch of snow directly in front of her feet. She walked like an old woman bent over and shaking, breaking into fits of coughing and murmuring the word coincidence over and over again. <laughs> when she finally reached her own street, it felt as if a huge weight had been lifted from her. She broke into a quick shuffle as she hurried toward the warmth and safety of her home. Before she knew it, her yard was in front of her, and she ran up the front walk and flung herself through the door. It took a long time for her numbed brain to register that the house was dark. Then she re remembered that the electricity was dead. First things first, she thought, as another spasm of, spasm of coughing clenched her chest. She stumbled down the dark hallway to the bathroom and reached into the medicine cabinet for the cough medicine. She oh, no. knew from experience that the taste was horrible, so she quickly gulped down a couple of mouthfuls. 
Suddenly pain shot through her with such intensity that it pitched her to the floor. Her throat began to burn and her stomach felt like it was being torn apart. She tried to scream, but the walls of her throat had swollen shut. Her weakened body flopped on the floor like a fish out of water and her vision dimmed. Whatever she swallowed, it wasn't cough medicine. Then, like a hideous joke, the lights flickered back on. Just in time for Ellen to see that she had drunk from the models, the, a bottle of her mother's hair dye. Coincidence? Yeah, right, was her final mocking thought before the poisonous liquid took her. Well, that was horrifying and I hated it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So while I was trying to find this story, <laughs> I found um, a few, um, <laughs> I found a few like, blogs or reddits reddit posts and things of like where kids had plagiarized it like they had plagiarized the story and tried to make it their own Uh and like there was one who told like a a more accurate version they're like this was and like in the comments they're like this was ripped off by you know like toby 130 who uh, who it says that they were trying you know like fact check it and it was Uh like a worse version it was like this (laughs) like sort of like convergent copy pasta (laughs) but um but one the best comment, Copy I mean, there were several people like, this isn't true. Like several people being like, there's no way this is true. No one, no one would do that. And the, but the best like fat checky comment that was, was just like, who drinks an entire bottle of cough syrup? Yeah. Like, is this, no, they're like, is this girl Lil Wayne? <laughs> oh, like, wow. So it's just like Zoomers, <laughs> like, like just repeating my generations, like, nah, um, but so that's the story that was read to me as a child. Yeah. Uh, that's not for kids or at least I mean, it's not for kids with anxiety, but so there's an even better Bania story linked in the show notes, okay. um, which I'm not reading cause it's, it's longer. <laughs> um, and it's, a, and I also wasn't read, it wasn't read to me as a kid. Um, and it is a classic simply named the Bania by Dorothy K. Haynes. So um, it takes place in the author's home of Scotland, where the story originates, where a, uh, like the myth originates, where a young woman named Mary runs home to report seeing a woman washing some laundry in a stream, and the family waits in dread for the death it pretended. Um, It's really, really good short fiction. There is an immense amount of atmosphere and like pull into the character's world. Um, But... What made this story stick for me when I was a kid was how I immediately associated it with a stretch of road one had to travel to get out of our county to Hmm. the interstate where there was like an old Navy and gluten free bread. Mm. Um, It's oh yeah, (laughs) yeah I know. (laughs) Uh, It's a wide, shallow valley with sparse, scrubby woods on both sides and a piddly little creek. Uh, with craggy banks snaking toward <laughs> and away from the road. So it's, mm. and so that's, that is that we always had that you have to drive along it um, called, you know, that's, and so everybody just refers to it as out 57 um, because it's like a state route. Um, and um, so the open landscape and low sickly trees make for a view shed that is anxious making in all mm. its potential for seeing something. Um, because like when you're so kids, kids in Appalachia, kids back home um, are told not to look into the woods at night, uh, not to whistle at night and especially do not whistle in the woods. 
ever, at but night. especially at night, oh, ever. Uh, which is something that I carry into today. Uh, I think maybe, maybe you've even noticed, Anna, I have a real thing about whistling because um, it just like Sorry. invites trouble. I never really think beyond that, but I just, it's a, uh, but, but also if you look into the woods, you might not like I'll what try you to keep see. That. I'll try to keep that in mind. I didn't, I didn't know that. I mean, I thought oh. you just didn't like the noise. Oh no, I don't like whistling. Mm. Like it's like a, I'm a big whistler. I'll try not as to. a concept. My na- one of my neighbors is too. And I'll hear him like whistling as he comes up the sidewalk. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you look into the woods, you might not like what you see or get seen by. Mm. So somewhere mm. in those woods along that stretch of road, there's a Benia. Um, and so even though we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of me hearing that story for the first time, it hmm. still has a pull on me. No kidding. Uh, I hate stretch, uh, driving that stretch of road at night. And I resent that I have to look to like be a safe driver. I keep the windows rolled up because I remember how <laughs> in the woods at the edge of my friend's farm on top of the ridge, like closer to town, if you held your breath late at night, you could hear another one in the woods slapping clothes against the rocks. Like this is, this is part of our, like, like the folk culture. Um, because there is a large, like the, like these are sort of like hereditary tales. And there's a, my mother's family is from originally they settled this this area from the place where that was a part of the where the the Benia would have been more of the Dorothy K Haynes type mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. it's not just ominous washerwomen that I don't want to see or hear <laughs> I grew up of hearing I grew up hearing other stories of other Haynes out that way out 57 Haints. including some published in books I will now read to you one of them it is a paragraph don't worry okay the White Stallion. Around 1900, in a house located in a lonely hollow east of Route 57 in Barber County, an old man named Gall was sick in bed and was about to pass away. His family was gathered at the farm to be with him in his last hours. Just after midnight, those attending the elderly man noticed that a white stallion had come over the hill and was heading toward the house. When the brilliant, pale-colored horse was close to the house, he circled it cautiously. He then went off in the same direction from which he had come, trotting up the side of the hill. The white stallion disappeared over the top of the hill. As he vanished over the crest, the old man died. This was the first and last time that a white stallion was seen in that particular part of the country. So that story uh, comes from the Telltale Lilac Bush and other ghost stories. Um, well, and other West Virginia ghost tales, sorry. Um, that is those compiled by folklorist and legend herself, Dr. Hmm. Ruth Ann Music, um, originally from Missouri and, and born in like the late 1890s. Uh, Dr. Ruth Ann Music first earned a teaching degree and then got into folklore because she was in, um, she did like graduate work in English. Uh, English literature, and then she got into folklore and eventually specialized in West Virginia folklore um, and was sort of single-handedly responsible for bringing it to the national, if not global, stage. Uh, Here's something you could read, Anna. In Ruth Ann Music's own words, quote, 
Anyone who has ever lived in West Virginia, or even traveled through the state, can easily see what an ideal place it would be for ghosts. It is an unending sequence of hills and valleys, with a backdrop of other mountains in the distance. Over all these mountains and valleys is a wilderness of shrubbery and trees, so that genuinely lonesome places exist in almost all sections of the state. Hundreds or even thousands of ghosts could gather nightly on West Virginia's hills or sigh from the treetops, and few living souls would know the difference. End quote. Yeah, which I think is uh, really, really beautiful. It's a beautiful way to put it, and it is a place that um, it, it feels it feels old, it feels haunted, um, and I have heard it described to me as... And people like talking, this is also part of that kind of, um, you know, like Gaelic tradition of the veil um, and that the veil between this world and the next um, can get kind of bunched up among the (laughs) hills. And like it works like haze where you have like haze that that goes over and it kind of settles in the hollers. And like as you go up, it'll feel dark because it's it's dark and it's damp because you don't get a lot of sunlight. So you have more moss and lichens and sort of mildew. And it's also a place where the further up the hollers someone is, um, you know, to take a historical materialist approach, the more likely they are to be disenfranchised. And so you have a lot of secrets up there. You have a lot of pain. You have a lot of sorrow. Um, and there's a lot of room for ghosts in a literary sense. Um, and so it is, it feels like it, it feels haunted. Um, and so in West Virginia, we have three flavors of ghosts. We have booberry. <laughs> no. Uh, We have benevolent spirits who aid the living uh, or are just vibing. Um, We have poltergeists. So that is a German word meaning noisy ghost, but it was translated by the good folks of the applet project as an ornery spirit, which like ornery, like, yeah, but we say ornery. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I was hearing the same. Yeah. Yeah. An ornery spirit. (laughs) That's uh, just... Yeah, you have you have one of those. She's very small and goes bark, bark, bark. <laughs> and so poltergeists are in, in this tradition, um, the spirits of those who died suddenly, tragically or otherwise before their indented time and are like killing time. Like until they're like appointed, they're like appointment to yeah. die, I guess. Um, and so they like mess with people. They play tricks. They just kind of they aren't they aren't harmful, but they're so kind of like ghost teens yeah yeah not teen ghosts um like um and then there's vengeful spirits who are seeking Mm. justice for some misdeed our Mm -hmm. most famous ghost is the greenbrier ghost uh which falls into the last category so it's been told by countless spooky podcasts and true crime shows and monetized youtube slideshows with ai voiceovers uh but in the show notes i've included a link to a version told by an old tiny west virginia storyteller um so you can like listen to the audio of that and it's all crackly um because it was recorded in like (laughs) the 90s 
like, wait, what? <laughs> but it's, you know, there's an audio recording because, um, so the applet project was a national endowment for the humanities I mean, project. I thought you going to say like, it was like the, from the forties, but no, no, it's like, I, it's, I think it might be actually from the seventies, um, that it was recorded, but still it wasn't, it's not quite the, um, okay. <laughs> um, so you could, you can listen to it in like, sort of closer to its original context of Mm -hmm. how the story is told. Um, The events behind the legend are true, as near as we can tell, um, dating to the end of the 19th century. And its claim to fame is being the only case in U.S. legal history in which someone was convicted due to the testimony of a ghost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you'll see references made to it in a very like, oh, those superstitious hill folk. Like, um, but the story stands on its own non-spectral merits. Um, And a bridged version of the story is this, told by me. (laughs) There was a man named Edward Shue who had a bad boy appeal that masked a nasty temper and proclivity for gender-based violence. Um, His first wife successfully left him while he was in jail, like stole a horse. And so she, while he was in jail, she managed to get a divorce uh, from him and leave. Yeah. His second wife died in mysterious circumstances that nobody really looked into. Um, And then he married the much younger Zona Heaster, much to her family's disapproval. Not uh, not too long after they were married and she moved up on the mountain with him, uh, you know, far from others uh, and Mm -hmm. like her social like support network. Mm -hmm. Um, Not too long after that, Zona was found dead. She was utterly bereft and refused to leave her side uh, through the medical exam and through the viewing. He just like what like held held her like cradling her head, like weeping. Um, And and so he stayed by her through that whole thing and through like he's the one who dressed her for the funeral and he stayed by her through the viewing. My people have a real thing about needing to see the deceased one last time, lest we refuse to believe that they're gone and go insane, mm. like thinking that they're still alive. Maybe okay. this is this. I don't. Maybe that's not a part of the norm wider culture, <laughs> but that's like a like you I have mean, to see them to say I have Roman Catholic like, family and they have wakes, but it's not. That's not the the reason. No, no, like it. you, like you, like there's like a oh. a lot of people really that's believe in like an open casket. Um, even if it's hard to look at, because that's sure. how you know that they're gone. Like on some, like whatever yeah. level it has to click. Gosh. So uh, she was buried and he went on with his life. Um, Zona's mother, however, refused to believe that it was heart failure or whatever natural cause the coroner said. Hmm. Uh, but she had no proof of foul play because Zona had been buried. Um, shortly after Zona was buried, Mrs. Heaster woke up in the middle of the night to see her daughter standing next to the bed, looking sad, but saying nothing. Zona appeared a second night and she was still silent despite Mrs. Heaster begging her to tell her what her unfinished business was. Zona appeared uh, by Mrs. Heaster's telling two more nights and explained what happened to her. In some versions, she explains it to her mother, like, lays it all out for her but in others she just lets her head fall limply to the side demonstrating the broken neck inflicted upon her 
Understanding that this was her chance to get justice for her daughter, Mrs. Heaster demanded that Zona be exhumed and an autopsy be performed. Her petition was granted without Edward Shue present, and it was determined that indeed the cause of death was a broken neck resulting from strangulation. Charges were brought against Shue, who was convicted of murder. And so, with her mother's help, Zona was able to prevent Shue from continuing the cycle and hurting any other women. Uh, so... People like to talk about like, ooh, the ghost story. But this story deals with very a very real dynamic of intimate partner violence and the possibility of preventing suffering for others as a means of processing tragedy and healing from trauma. Um, and so I just want you to like think about that in, in sort of the these sort of roles of folklore and these things that we we stories that we tell ourselves and each other and like what functions it might serve. So it's a common trope um, in in ghost stories in general, but certainly in ghost stories from uh, Central Appalachia, um, where a person whose agency was denied in life is regained in death. Uh, we want to believe that bad people will get what's coming to them. And stories like that of Zora Heaster Shoe keep that hope alive, even when it feels like the villain has won. The titular story of the Telltale Lilac Bush carries that same message and also takes place back home. I will now read the Telltale Lilac Bush. I thought you were going to say, in a lilac bush. Well, it yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think I know this one as well. Is it, it is possible that I have read that book because both of those stories. We've, we've known each other for a very long time. That's a great and point. And I've owned this book for a very long time. <laughs> so, An old sense. man and woman lived by themselves along the Tigret Valley River. There had been trouble between them for many years. Few people visited them, and it was not immediately noticed that the wife had unaccountably disappeared. Oh, boy. People suspected the old man had killed her, but her body couldn't be found, and the question was dropped. The old man lived a gay life after his wife's disappearance, until one night when a group of young men were sitting on his porch, take, talking about all the parties which the old man was giving. While they were talking, a large lilac bush growing nearby began beating on the window pane and beckoning towards them as, if, as though it were trying to tell them something. No one would have thought anything of this had the wind not had the wind been blowing, uh. but there was no wind, not even a small breeze. Paying no attention to the old man's protest, the young men dug up the lilac bush. They were stunned when the roots were found to be growing from the palm of a woman's hand. Mm -hmm. The old man screamed and ran down the hill towards the river, never to be seen again. <laughs> That's the whole story. <laughs> ah! uh, elsewhere in the in the notes. Um, there is a, um, a, a like a blog post, like a feature written on the West Virginia University Library's uh, website of mm -hmm. someone who found one of the stories in, in the, a, a music anthology, um, was about her grandmother <laughs> and like super rude that she was like a jealous, you know, conniving wife kind of thing. And, uh, and it, so it's it a, said the name, like what? How did yeah. she know it was? Her? The, her okay. name was uh, it's like in a community and the name was Hostetler. And she's like, okay, that's my grandma. And so it's, Yikes. and so the, it sort of, it kind of reinforces it's the fact the that like, these are, these are like stories that, yeah. that, um, that are told about someone or perhaps every couple generations, they assign it to a new character yeah. um, to be like, Oh, I remember her. Like she lived, you know, she lived out Talbot kind of thing. Like, you know, like that, that kind of 
And you're like, oh, yeah. And then, you know, 40 years later, it's somebody else. Um, but I never thought about this as a kid. Shocking. Uh, but while preparing this episode, I thought about the discussion around Alvin Schwartz's work um, and how, like, is it appropriate? And, mm. and you know, pe- a lot of people say, like, yeah, like it, it, it is because we can't just because something like we shouldn't prevent children, prohibit children from engaging with th- and talking about things that scare them um, because that doesn't make the fear go away. It just sure. gives them shame about having the fear. Um, and so uh, thinking about how scary stories give us a chance to think about the things that frighten us and hopefully let go of some of that fear mm. uh, by processing our emotions around it. Real life is full of terrifying and unexplained things. Um, and ghost stories give us a chance to vent some of that fear and sadness and maybe even give us a little bit of hope. To end this episode and to bring it on home, I'd like to share a story that explores the interplay between folklore and fiction. Um, it was written by Brees DJ Pancake from Milton, West Virginia. Um, I know. Pancake is a very common surname in the Milton, West Virginia area. The face I'm making is just, I'm charmed. I'm not trying to be yeah. patronizing or anything. I was just like, yeah. So um, he, he wrote short fiction um, and he was incredibly talented. He died at 27. Um, and his output during the 1970s sort of defined Appalachian Gothic literature If you'll indulge me, I'd like to read Time and Again now. Um, You can find it republished on the Short Story Project, linked in the show notes. But if you can find an anthology of his stories, he he published uh, 12, I think. Um, Do, do find it and read it. Um, Like the story Trilobites is the first one in like the published anthology. And it is just so, it's so good. Um, So... (laughs) I remember I remember the first time I read this story um, and how I just this kind of was, that you're going to read the, the story that I will read to you now time and again. And my awe at how someone managed to do that um, in such few words, because um, if you remember, if you remember a long, long time ago, um, I like wanted to be a short fiction author like that was my that 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 was my thing while listening to me read it to you Mm -hmm. think about what we've discussed here together think about the functions of folklore think about how our bodies and our brains react to scary situations and that that sort of like the scary thing uh sort of like activating that parasympathetic nervous system reminds you that you are alive and you get to enjoy it. That, that, that like thrill versus fear where it's just a different context for the same emotions. Um, it's not, this is, it's not that this is like a slow burn kind of scary. Um, Mr. Weeks called me out again tonight and I look back down the hall of my house. I left the kitchen light burning. This is an empty old house since the old lady died. When Mr. Weeks doesn't call, I write everybody I know about my boy. Some of my letters always come back, and the folks who write back say nobody knows where he got off to. I can't help but think he might come home at night when I'm gone, so I let the kitchen light burn, and I go on out the door. The cold air is the same, and the snow pellets my cap, sifts under my collar. 
I hear my hogs come grunting from their shed, thinking I've come to feed them. I ought to feed them better than that awful slop, but I can't until I know my boy is safe. I told him not to go and look, that the hogs just squeal because I never kill them. They always squeal when they are happy, but he went and looked. Then he ran off someplace. I brush the snow from my road plow's windshield and climb in. The vinyl seats are cold, but I like them. They are smooth and easy cleaned. The lug wrench is where I where it always has been by the side of my seat. I heft it, put it back, I start the salt spreader, lower my shear, and head out to clean the mountain road. The snow piles in a wall outside against the berm. No cars move. They're stranded at the side, and as I plow past them, a line falls in behind me, but they always drop back. They don't know how long it takes the salt to work. They are common fools. They rush around in such weather, and they end up dead. They never sit still and wait for the salt to work. I think I'm getting too old to do this anymore. I wish I could rest and watch my hogs get old and die, which, when the last one is close to dying, I will feed him his best meal and leave the gate open. But that will most likely not happen, because I know this stretch of Route 60 from Anstead to Golly, and I do a good job. Mr. Weeks always brags on what a good job I do, and when I meet the other truck plowing the uphill side of this road, I will honk. That'll be Mr. Weeks coming up from Golly. I think how I never met Mr. Weeks in my life but in a snowplow. Sometimes I look out to Sewell Mountain and see a snow coming, but then I call Mr. Weeks. But we are not friends. We don't come around each other at all. I don't even know if he's got family. When I pass the rest stop at Hawk's Nest, a new batch of fools line up behind me, but pretty soon I'm alone again. As I plow down the grade toward chimney corners, my <laughs> lights are the only ones on the road, and the snow takes up the yellowish spinning of my dome light and the white curves of my headlights. I smile at the pretties they make. But I'm tired and I wish I was home. I worry about the hogs. Should have given them more slop, but when the first one dies, the others will eat him quick enough. I make the big turn at Chimney Corners and see a hitchhiker standing there. His front is clean and he looks half frozen, so I stop to let him in. He says, Hey, thank you, mister. How far are you going? Charleston. You got family there? I say, Yes, sir. I only go to Golly Bridge, then I turn around. That's fine. He says, he is a polite boy. The fools pack up behind me and my low gears whine away from them. Let them fall off the mountain for all I care. This is not good weather to be on the road, I say. Sure ain't, but a fellow's got to get home. Why didn't you take a bus? Aw, buses stink, he says. My boy always talked like that. Where you been? Roanoke. Worked all year for a man. He gave me Christmas time and a piece of change. He sounds like a good man. You bet. He's got this farm outside of town. Horses. You ain't never seen such horses. He's going to let me work the horses next year. I have a farm, but I only have some hogs left. Hogs is good business, he says. I look at him. You ever seen a hog die? I looked back at the road snow. Sure, hogs die hard. I seen people die in the war easier than a hog at a butchering. Never noticed. We shot and stuck him pretty quick. They do right smart jerking around, but they're dead by then. Maybe. What can you do with a hog if you don't butcher him? Sell him? Oh, my hogs are old hogs. Not good for anything. i just been letting them die. I make my money on this piece of road every winter. Don't need much. He says, ain't got any kids? My boy ran off when my wife died, but that was considerable time ago. He has quite a long time. Where the road is patched, I work my shear up, go slower to let more salt hit behind. In my mirror, I see the lights of cars sneaking up behind me. Then of a sudden, the hitchhiker says, what's your boy do now? He was learning a mason's trade when he ran off. Makes good money. 
I don't know. He was only a hod carrier then. He whistles. I've done that two weeks this summer. I've never been so sore. It's hard work, I say. I think this boy has good muscles if he can harry a hod. I see the lights of Mr. Weeks' snowplow coming toward us. I gear into first. I'm not in a hurry. Scrunch down, I say. I'd get in trouble for picking you up. The boy hunkers in the seat, and the lights from Mr. Weeks' snowplow shine into my cab. I wave into the lights, not seeing Mr. Weeks, and we honk when we pass. Now I move closer to center. I want to do a good job and get all the snow, but when the line of cars behind Mr. Weeks comes towards me, I get fidgety. I don't want to cause any accidents. The boy sits up and starts talking again, and it makes me jittery. I was kind of scared about coming through Fayette County, he says. "Uh Uh-huh, I say. I try not to brush any cars. Damn, but a lot of hitchhikers get killed up here. A man lays on his horn as he goes past. But I have to get what Mr. Weeks left, and I am always too close to center. The boy says, that's soldier's bones. Jesus, but that was creepy. The last car edges by, but my, my back and shoulders are shaking, and I sweat. That soldier, he says, you know about that? I don't know. They found his duffel bag at the bottom of Lover's Leap. All his grip was in there and his bones, too. I remember. That was too bad. The snow makes such nice pictures in my headlights, and it rests me to watch them. There's a big kid got killed up there, too. He was the only one they ever found with all his meat on. rest of them just find their bones. They haven't found any in years, I say. This snow makes me think of France. It was snowing like this when they dropped us over France. I yawn. I don't know, he says. Maybe the guy who done him in is all dead. I figure so, I say. The hill bottoms out slowly, and we drive on to Gali, clearing the stretch behind New River. The boy is smoking and taking in the snow. It snowed like this in France the winter of 44, I say. I was in the paratroops, and they dropped us where the Germans were thick. My platoon took a farmhouse without a shot. Damn, he says. Do you knife them? Snap their necks, I say, and I see my man tumble into the sty. People die so easy. We come to Gali, where the road has already been cleared by the other trucks. I pull off, and the line of cars catches up, sloshing by. I grip the wrench. Look under the seat for my flashlight, boy. He bends forward, grabbing under the seat, and his head is turned from me. But I'm way too tired now, and I don't want to clean the seat. She ain't there, mister. Well, I say. I look at the lights of the cars. They are fools. Thanks again, he says. He hops to the ground, and I watch him walking backward, thumbing. I'm almost too tired to drive home. I sit and watch this boy walking backward until a car stops for him. I think, he is a polite boy and lucky to get rides at night. All the way up the mountain, I count the men in France, and I have to stop and count again. I never get any farther than that night it snowed. Mr. Weeks passes me and honks, but I don't honk. Time and again, I try to count and can't. I pull up beside my house. My hogs run from their shelter in the backyard and grunt at me. I stand by my plow and look at the first rims of light around Sewell Mountain through the snowy limbs of the trees. Cars hiss by on the clean road. The kitchen light still burns, and I know the house is empty. My hogs stare at me, snort beside their trough. They're waiting for me to feed them, and I walk to their pen. Ah! <laughs> so, um, that... Mm-mm. is a story that brings to life the kind of urban rural legends um also this story takes place very close to where i drove into a bridge oh well when you say drove into a bridge 
at like two miles an hour. <laughs> two miles an hour, managed to damage the driver's side door <laughs> of my car. <laughs> uh, Doing something like a bit, I don't know, hairpin turn is a little bit of an understatement for what I was attempting to do there. Uh, but, um, so that is folklore. One of my favorite pieces of short fiction. Like, obviously I didn't contribute very much to this episode apart from going, "Eh." but, (laughs) um, there are new England folk tales. Oh, like the Vavitch, the Vavitch. Yeah. And a lot of them, the ones that I remember, um, cause I, I must've had a book of them or something but the ones that i remember are um like stories of like sailor sailor stories or like Mm -hmm. you know uh, when you're up on the widow's walk in your new england house do you know what a widow's walk is no okay well i you made the face and and i realized that like a place where like widows go to be like oh my love yeah, well, okay, so a lot of uh, coastal New England, like in whaling towns, uh-huh. former whaling towns, um, <laughs> it's illegal now, uh, the the houses will have up on the roof level, there will be a small kind of railing enclosed deck where you could look out over the ocean to see if your beloved's boat was coming home. Um, and they're often called widow's walks because often... The boats weren't coming home. Ah, um, the sea is a treacherous place. Would you? None of Would you business. see a Fata Morgana from one of those? I know that. What is that, Fata Morgana? That the, is the, the light. That's, that's thing? where it's like a an optical thing with like the atmosphere where you yeah. see something that is past. It has to do with the curvature of the Earth, and you see the boat upside down. Oh yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. of the way. I mean, I don't, I, I'm sure it depends on distance and I don't know anything about physics. Yeah. And that's not this podcast. Sure. Goodness knows. Recently learned. (laughs) Uh, um, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go hug Naomi and my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. (laughs) No, this was really, I, I, I did really enjoy story time. Um, Thank you for bringing the Taily Poe back to my... Yeah. Back to the surface. Really, I think the Taily Poe is the scariest one of I all think of it these. is. I still... Um, I'm still, NGL, a little bit scared of the Taily Poe. Because... I mean, don't even go though, chopping even off Even though any it's one of... Yeah, exactly. Even tales. though it's one of those, like, very... Be like, I will not be in this situation. Like that, and yet that is something that somehow uh, scares me the most. Um because that is something that has been like when you talk about American folklore, people talk about Appalachia, they talk about the Ozarks, they talk about indigenous communities, and they talk about the black diaspora. Like, mm-hmm. that's who they talk about because uh, a lot of New England folk tales are included in national, like, English language arts curricula. Like, that's how yeah, I read Washington Irving. Like, that's sort of like thinking about, like, whether it is, is it literature or is it folktales? But even if it, among those who may be considered simple or this a form of like, um, you know, enforcing conformity or education um, among like 
non-literate or semi-literate societies, there mm-hmm. is still, that does not mean that there lacks complexity because these, no, each People of these are complicated stories, no matter what, where they are. <laughs> yeah. Each of these stories speak to com- like more complex issues. Like the guy who is facing food insecurity, why did that have to happen to him? Like he had this opportunity to like, what he didn't deserve to eat? Like what like what is the lesson? And I don't know what the lesson right, is. Right. It's not like, and that it's was, not a morality tale. It's not like no. this was a wicked man and he got what was coming to him. It was like, no, this was a hungry man. Yeah. And so sometimes and, yeah, if sometimes you just are in there. the holler and you hold your breath, you can hear that a little because uh, it's like a like a trickster figure, but also um sometimes the lesson is life's hard (laughs) that's uh, which is true like even today in in a a lot of these like in this geography at home for many people don't sugarcoat Um, it so yeah so um thinking about that like think about that now you know the story of the greenbrier ghost and that it's you know it's not the realm of superstition and stuff it could just be um a a mother who is trying to break a cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is comforting to know that like, you know, perhaps, you know, you, I, I could be the one who was saved because, you know, he stopped mm-hmm. this man from, from continuing what was at that point, a pattern of, of, mm-hmm. of um, intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And read the work of Breeze DJ Pancake. Um, was a like unbelievably talented uh, writer who um, had a lot, um, you know, like like suffered from um, suffered from mental illness, mm-hmm. suffered from generational poverty, uh, and died by suicide. And so it's just sort of a. Um, you know, like he, he had so much more to offer as a human being than just his writing. Uh, but it is sort of like what we, um, I saw there's a, a reviewer that talks about his work that, you know, the, his stories contain so much that perhaps he felt that he had used it all up because there's just so much in his work and there's so much depth and there's so much emotion. Um, and there's so much that he manages to pour onto the page that uh, it really is like a like a generation defining voice and a genre mm-hmm. defining voice, and um, I can't believe it is so hard to believe that somebody that young could write something that holds that much sort of like not remo- like resignation and that much sort of like the 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 narrator of that story um is clearly a broken poor person and a violent person yet still contains these other parts i don't know well we all contain multitudes we we contain multitudes we contain multiple parts and um wherever you go people have interiority that's true. We all have thoughts inside, like a Reese's peanut butter cup. 
packed with thoughts. <laughs> and sea salt. We sure do. Uh, maybe I meant peanut M M&M. and M. I don't know. Some of us have more thoughts inside than others at times. Yeah. Oh, bud. Okay. Well, I'm gonna like go take <laughs> and like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug and um, mm. get some rest. And I, I will good, see huh? you. I will see you, Anna, tomorrow for our salad dinner. Mm-hmm. And I will see you, listeners, uh, when, potentially when? never. But that doesn't mean that I <laughs> won't hear me. <laughs> That's right, because Amber's a ghost and has been all along. Ooh. And it is chilly in here with no skin on. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.